Please be seated. Good evening to you. Luke chapter 7, as we mentioned, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis 2, uh, Revelation. And we come now to that chapter. And the chapter begins with now, when he, that is Jesus, concluded his sayings in the hearing of the people that he entered into Capernaum. And we remember the last time we were together that uh, we were studying what is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. And so he finishes that sermon, uh, and then he makes his way uh, to Capernaum. Capernaum became Jesus' kind of headquarters in adopted hometown when his uh, real hometown, uh, Nazareth, rejected him because of his claims to be uh, the Messiah. And so, so much of what uh, he did in his ministry was centered in uh, uh, the uh, city of Capernaum. So many miracles were accomplished. I mean, he, re- he did so many more miracles than are recorded in the Word of God. But of the miracles that are recorded within the Gospels, there's such a high concentration of them done in the city of Capernaum that it just kind of becomes uh, synonymous in our minds with uh, Jesus' power. And we're going to see uh, an example of that uh, here tonight. We're told as he enters into Capernaum that there was a certain centurion and he had a servant and the servant was dear to him, and the servant was sick and ready to die. So uh, right on the edge of dying. When he, the, the focus of everything is going to center around Jesus and this certain centurion. He is unnamed uh, for us within the passage, but the Roman centurions were regarded as the backbone of the Roman military. And the Roman military in the ancient world The world had never seen anything like it, never seen a fighting machine like the Roman Roman, uh, Empire and its armies. Uh, Because the the Gospels and uh, the early church, all of the book of Acts, all of the epistles are all uh, written and occur within the context of the Roman Empire, Um, I've read a, a quite a number of books on the Roman Empire through the years in order to understand that context a little bit better, to understand the Bible a little bit better. And I remember reading a a series of books on uh, the Roman military and how astonishingly efficient and innovative that they were. And it would have never worked apart from the centurions. The centurion was the equivalent of a captain in our modern uh, U.S. military. Uh, they are, were the commanders over a hundred men. That's why they're called centurions or sentry. Uh, and uh, they're mentioned four times within the Gospels, always spoken of uh, favorably. And, uh, and so uh, this is the man's background. This is, uh, it's impossible to understand the point of the passage without understanding this is a military man. I remember when I was a, a, a young boy and even a young man uh, that it wasn't unusual in the United States of America if uh, children, uh, specifically male at that point in time, had been raised Uh, without proper discipline, without proper respect for authority, uh, without understanding that there is something more important in life than uh, what they're doing and want to do, that there is something valuable in being a part of a united effort to accomplish uh, something. And the person, uh, the young man might just be very much astray. These things might be missing from his life because there was no parental input in his life. Or he might have had all the parental input in the world, but he went sideways. And it wasn't unusual to stand in a courtroom and be given the option of either going to jail for, uh, to satisfy the full term of the sentence for the crime that was committed or to join the military and uh, with the purpose that joining the military would teach them a discipline, a self-control, a respect for authority that was clearly not evident within their life. 
And when you're talking about the discipline of the Roman uh, Empire, you're talking about a phenomenal uh, fighting machine. And again, the centurions were at the core of that. They are the ones that made uh, all of this happen. He's an extraordinary centurion, as as the description is laid out for us. Uh, He had a servant, and we're told that his servant was sick and sick to the point uh, of death. We're also told that his servant, uh, 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 that he cared about his servant. The servant was uh, dear to him. And the servant is basically a polite way of putting it in the King James Bible. The servant was essentially a a slave. And uh, slavery was, they, they estimate there were seven million slaves that were Uh, a a part of the Roman Empire at this particular point in time. So people uh, had all kinds of slaves. And the way that slaves were um, looked at in the Roman Empire is they were property in the same way that you would buy um, a horse or a cow uh, or anything like that. It was just property. And uh, so you would have a servant or have a slave and you would use that servant or slave until it was no longer cost effective, until it began to cost more to have them than they could generate for the estate. And you simply got rid of them at that point and replaced them. And that was the casual, common attitude toward uh, slaves. And here we have uh, a centurion who does not carry over that attitude of the Roman Empire toward his slave or his servant. This servant is dear to him. He doesn't see him as something that uh, is uh, disposable uh, at all and something you just uh, replace with uh, something else as soon as uh, in the same way that you might change out an appliance. And of course, it says something wonderful about uh, this, uh, this man. And uh, not only did he not view his slave in those terms, but he cared deeply about his slave's uh, welfare. And so, uh, but one thing he recognizes, he's got this servant, this slave. You ever watch these movies sometimes where you'll have these very wealthy men or women um, in, uh, say, uh, earlier in the time of slavery in the United States of America or in, in uh, where they had the servants that were treated very much as servants in, in England in those, time, those period pieces that you sometimes see. And uh, these very accomplished men usually in, in the movie and uh, everyone around them is a threat to them in some kind of a way. They have to watch themselves all of the time. They don't know who is a friend or a foe. They don't, and they end up so lonely. And they end up with this, uh, the, the, um, the, uh, the one person they end up realizing within their entire household that they can go out on a porch or take a walk with and shoot straight with, and then maybe have the person shoot straight back with you as much as, as uneven as the relationship was, was a slave. And so relationships uh, would develop in that way, a mutual uh, respect. Now, he, you notice the, the, his plea that he communicates to Jesus here uh, through messengers. And so when he heard uh, about Jesus, so he hears about Jesus in Capernaum, he has evidently heard that Jesus is healing people. Jesus is healing a lot of people. Jesus can heal anyone. Jesus was healing all of the sick in entire villages at a particular time. So he uh, heard uh, about Jesus. He knew about his power to heal. And so uh, that beautiful progression, uh, he heard. And then he sent elders of the Jews to Jesus and then pleading with Jesus to come and to heal uh, his servant. And so he evidently feels that Uh, Here is this esteemed rabbi, uh, this miracle worker, this phenomenon in human history, and he doesn't feel that because of the animosity between the Jew and the Gentile, and specifically between the Jew and the Romans, and the Romans towards the Jews, that it wouldn't be putting his best foot forward to get the healing of his uh, servant if he went as a Gentile 
uh, to Jesus because he had never seen anything like Jesus in terms of the attitudes of the Jews uh, toward uh, the Gentiles. So he thought, I will send uh, Jews now to bring my plea or my request uh, to, uh, to Jesus, which is what, and, and when he says pleading with him to come and heal his servant, this gives you the idea of uh, the urgency, the, the, the connection of his heart here in, in pleading with Jesus. And so this group of, of elders among the Jews who had a relationship with this uh, uh, centurion in Capernaum, when they came to Jesus, they begged him, all right, that's a, I don't know the last time you've seen a man beg, but that's a powerful scene, and uh, picture it in your mind. And they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving of having his servant healed for, so I give him the reason, for is a reason word, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So this uh, makes this uh, uh, centurion even more remarkable, uh, again, because of as we, it, it, when Jesus finally uh, comes to the point of his crucifixion, and he is uh, there in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, and he's being scourged and beaten by the Roman soldiers who took great glee in meeting that punishment out upon this Jew that claimed to be uh, the king of the Jews. So there was a lot of uh, a, 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 a very low view. Of, uh, of Jews by uh, the Gentiles. And so here he is. He is a Roman centurion, tough as nails, in an environment of just off the graph uh, prejudice against the Jews. And yet we're told uh, that uh, he loves our nation. He loved the Jewish people, and he loved the Jewish people so much that he built them a synagogue. I don't know when's the last time you wrote a check to uh, build a building for someone else. Probably never, like me. But think about this man's love for the Jewish people in an extraordinary context of, of animosity, and he writes the check for a Jewish synagogue to be built for the Jews. And why would he write it except that the Jews did not have the money to do it themselves? It was an extraordinary uh, expense. And in this particular point in time in the Roman Empire, things would change in terms of uh, over the, the entire length of the Roman Empire in terms of how they paid their military. But uh, at this particular point in time, the salary was not very large, and, but you got a portion of whatever was the uh, loot that uh, you got from conquering another land or winning, uh, defeating another army in battle. And, and so here is someone who every cent that he has owned, that, that he had, is money that he put his life on the line in order to earn. I mean, no telling how many battles he had uh, been in the midst of and survived to be able to raise this kind of money, to have this kind of money, and then uh, as a representation of his heart, he gives them a portion of what he has in order to, be, uh, to build a, a synagogue. And uh, again, everything about him is extraordinary uh, within the passage. Now, it is interesting that when these uh, Jewish elders come to Jesus pleading on behalf of the centurion, they come to Jesus and they plead with him that he will heal this servant of this, uh, of this centurion, but they plead for him to heal him on the basis of works, on the basis of merit, on the basis of the fact that this centurion is deserving there in verse 4 and then in verse 5 because of his love for our nation and he has built us a synagogue. Now, Jesus is not going to heal this man's uh, servant uh, on the basis of uh, uh, human merit 
or on the basis of uh, this man's uh, good works. It's going to be completely of grace. But that's how they approach him. It's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't enter into a conversation with them on the basis of this. They're trying to get him to come and do this on the basis of deserving, and Jesus ignores it and goes on, and he's going to do the healing on the basis uh, of grace. He doesn't take the time to correct them on, on how they're approaching him at this point. And there's a lot of things that are like that in life, I think, and, and I think most of us have experienced that, experienced it, where somebody says something, and it's wrong. It's even biblically wrong. But the context of what we're in the middle of, the picture is so much bigger and more important that it isn't the time to correct this relatively small thing, but to continue to stay focused on the big thing that God is doing here, and then maybe you can correct it uh, a little bit later. Anybody that does any kind of biblical counseling is very, very uh, familiar with this. And uh, it isn't always, and it isn't uh, almost always, but it is very regular, where someone will come in, they have a certain knowledge of the Scriptures, and they begin to lay out their problem. They begin to lay out their issue. And then they begin to say things, some of which are not correct. Uh, but if you, if you stop them in their train of thought while they're trying to get to the big thing that they want to talk about, they'll be so frustrated, they'll never get to it or become so self-conscious related to it. And so you, you correct that another time and you make the main thing the main thing. And, and Jesus uh, does that here. And so they make this plea uh, to him, and we're told in verse 6 that Jesus then went with uh, them, now to go, presumably, to his house to heal this servant. And when he was already not far from the house, he's almost there to the centurion's house. The centurion evidently gets word of this, and, and he sent now friends of his, to Jesus, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. When I asked you to heal my servant and and sent these men to plea uh, for the life of my servant, I never had the idea that you would come to my house and that you would uh, do it. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. And here he, in verse 7, he gives the revelation of what he thought Jesus was doing, what his expectation was. But you say the word, and my servant will be healed. I never intended you to come to my house. I would, I, I, in the humility of this man, is, is evident here. He said, I just, all I thought is that if you just said the word, then my servant will be healed. And then he gives the, the rationale uh, from his life experience behind this belief uh, in Jesus. He said, for I am also a man placed under authority and uh, having Uh, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, uh, and he uh, does, uh, does this. And so he talks about his position in the, in the Roman military. When I say jump, people ask me how high on the way up. When I say come, it's the same uh, kind of thing. I, uh, I get what you're about, Jesus. As, as a Roman centurion, I am backed by the in, uh, entire authority of Rome. I'm an authorized representative of Rome. And when I give a command, I give a command in the full authority of Rome and the full authority of the Roman Empire stands behind any command that I give and I know to be true that what is true of me in my relationship to uh, the Roman Empire is equally true of you concerning all of creation. I get it. You don't have to come anywhere to accomplish what you need to do. You speak it and it can be uh, done. 
And he's saying, what, I see that what is true of me concerning a hundred men is true of you concerning all of, of the creation. Everything that is in it, all of the heavens, the earth, all that's in it, when you say go or come or, or do, then it, it, it commands and, and obeys that command. And Jesus' reaction to this uh, faith that uh, he hears now uh, spoken to him in this public setting, and Jesus heard these things, he marveled at the centurion. And he turned around and, and he, uh, he thought this is so important, he makes it a teachable moment for the crowd that was following him. Let's go see what Jesus is going to do here. Big crowd. And so he turns now to instruct the crowd and he said, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in uh, Israel. And so he praises the man's uh, he, the thing that causes Jesus to marvel is the man's faith and, uh, uh, and, and then the, the verbal response he makes as he praises now the man's, uh, pray, uh, man's faith before the crowd. He wanted them to learn something uh, about this. In other words, the faith that this man has exhibited is a faith that is to be recognized and it is to be emulated in, in everyone's life concerning uh, Jesus Christ. And he went on to declare that the faith that he had come into and contact with in this Roman centurion excelled any faith that he had run into among any of the Jews there among God's people in the land of Israel. It wasn't that he hadn't run into faith among the Jews, but he had never run into this quality of faith in, uh, in any of the Jews that he had uh, a, a contact with. There were no Jews who had made this kind of a confession concerning him and concerning his power. Not just his power, but what is the source of his power, the very kingdom uh, uh, of God. And so you look at this man, he has none of the spiritual uh, advantages of the Jews. He has no Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, Jeremiah, Malachi. He has none of these people in his bloodline or in his uh, spiritual uh, heritage uh, at all. He doesn't have a long history with God at all, and yet he's the one who not only boldly professes his faith in Jesus, but he did it in this uh, literal sea of unbelief among uh, the religious Jews who, uh, by and large, uh, rejected Jesus and were rejecting him at, at that very point in time, though they had all of the sp spiritual privileges that ought to have caused them to recognize uh, Jesus for who he was as the Son of God and Messiah and his power to do uh, these kind of things. And when Jesus uh, heard this expression of faith from such an unlikely source, uh, he marveled related to uh, that. He ad uh, admired it, uh, it and, and it blessed him. Now, I want you to notice that uh, of the two kind of groups that are here, you have Jesus who is in, a, in his own category, but you have two other groups of people. Um, you have uh, the Roman centurion on the one hand, and you have the elders of the Jews on uh, 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 the other hand. And both of those uh, groups, uh, both the Roman centurion and the, the Jewish elders, they both knew exactly the same thing to be true of Jesus, uh, uh, that he could heal the servant. Uh, the centurion knew it, and the elders of the Jews knew it, or they would have never come carrying the message. Everybody knew that Jesus could heal uh, sick people. But it is only the centurion who acted in faith upon that truth, and the others uh, did not. And to the centurion, this truth about Jesus was a truth to be acted upon. While to the Jewish religious leaders, it was a truth just simply to be known. And I think that this is something that's important for us to stay alert to in our own lives, and especially the longer we walk with the Lord as, uh, as Christians, and, uh, and, and the better we come to know the Bible. 
Very often I think that all that we know about Jesus uh, can over time cease to have any effect upon our faith at all. And uh, we begin, uh, we hit a certain point in our Christian walk where now Bible studies, devotionals every day, coming to church and uh, listening to sermons and all, all it ever, it, it becomes is simply uh, the means by which to accumulate more knowledge. It's just more things to know as opposed to more things to know in order that I might believe those things to be true and take it the extra mile that the, the, uh, uh, the, the centurion did and to actually act upon that particular truth. And, and that is something that uh, is very, very easy to fall into if we've been Christians uh, for a while. And it's wonderful when you run into a new Christian or you run into young faith like you see it in this uh, centurion and uh, the new Christian for whom everything is brand new. I mean, they read a passage like this and it isn't for the hundredth time. And they look at this and they're so wowed by the whole thing and they take the whole realization that this is the kind of authority that Jesus has and then in prayer to invite him to be active in the same way in the various situations in their life. It isn't just something to know more about him, but now I need to do something with this. It's something that uh, by faith I need to respond to it. And then the other category, if we've been around for a while, is to just listen to it, and it goes up into the noggin. But if I stop and I ask myself, when is the last time I stepped out in faith in my own life related to my knowledge that Jesus can heal anyone or Jesus can raise anyone up out of a sickbed? And instead it becomes, yeah, you know, I used to be like that when I was a Christian. And I used to pray in that way, but now I just seen too much. And, and now it's, all of this is just noggin fodder. It's just for me to know more. Some little obscure point that I'd never heard before to kind of uh, fill in uh, the blank. And I think it's good for us, if we've been Christians for a while, to ask ourselves, when's the last time that we took all that we know about Jesus When's the last time that all that we know about him caused us to take a step of faith? Caused us to ask something uh, big of him with an expectation that, that he might answer that in the light uh, of his power. To take and to claim uh, by faith some promise uh, uh, of his and ask uh, something big of God. And to do something with his promises rather than just simply uh, knowing them. The Jewish religious leaders and uh, many other Jews as well at that particular point in time, uh, they got lost in their head in, in a relationship with God. It was all just being lived in their head. I mean, how else do you miss the Messiah? And so they, they, they had a Bible and they studied the Bible. And um, as they studied it and they parsed it and they, all of these different kinds of things, uh, less and less did it become something that you would act upon in, a, in your relationship with God or something that you would take out into the world. Uh, it was like the Bible was provided to man, again, as discussion fodder, theological uh, discussion fodder for mankind. And they begin to argue over uh, questions that were the equivalent of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And that's where they, that's where they went in, in, in terms of, uh, of uh, walking with God. And here comes this man, and their relationship with God got so complicated, and, and his faith is just so simple and so powerful. God said it, that settles it, and, and I believe it, and I'm going to do something uh, with it. And I find I have to remind myself of that. And looking at in, in the preparation of a sermon, looking at it and um, uh, asking myself, uh, you, you know, it isn't enough just to prepare a sermon that makes sense or just imparts information, but an element of it that where I become a first partaker of it and it challenged me is me in my personal relationship with the Lord. And the more that we know about God, the more extraordinary should be, and the more responsibility we have, but the more extraordinary should be 
our faith and how we live, how we step out in, in, in the light uh, of who we understand him uh, to be. And so this uh, centurion, way off, you know, kind of like what in the world does he know? You know, he doesn't know much, but, may, but maybe it's a blessing uh, uh, because he's still in that place in his Christian life where it's enough for him to read something, believe it about God, and then do something about it and send messengers to bring somebody, to, uh, Jesus, to heal, uh, to heal my servant. And then Jesus, he does heal him and from uh, and those who were sent uh, they returned to the house after Jesus had made the declaration to the crowd and they found the servant well uh, who had been uh, sick and so Jesus proceeded to um, heal the servant but he didn't continue the journey he met that man right where his faith was I believe you don't have to come I believe all you have to do is just say it and it's done. And Jesus says, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. That's the truth about me. And he healed him in that way. Now, it happened in verse 11, uh, the, the, the day after all of this, that Jesus went into a city uh, called Nain. And the city of Nain's a small town about 25 miles uh, southeast of Capernaum and uh, about six miles uh, southeast of Jesus' hometown of, of Nazareth. And so he comes into that city. He's obviously traveling and teaching and notice, and many of his disciples went with him, and, uh, and a large crowd. So he's got people who are committed to following him. There are his disciples, and then there are other people who are just very, very interested in him, seekers related to him, and it constitutes a huge crowd. He comes to Nain. He's about to overwhelm the city with this entourage of followers that are following him to see what in the world is he going to teach next and do uh, uh, next. And so it speaks to the fact of, of the level of Jesus' popularity at this point in time uh, in his ministry. Large crowd, we're told, uh, following him now uh, into the city. And when he came near to the gate of the city, and, and in the ancient world, these cities had gates. They would build walls around the city, and then they would put a gate, and it was the main entrance and exit out of the city. So he comes near now to the gate of the city, that is the entrance of the city and fully intent upon entering into the city and behold a dead man was being carried out so he's coming into we're told in verse uh, 11 and then here's another scene that meets him at the gate uh, coming out of the city and uh, behold the dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a large crowd from the city was with her and these two huge crowds uh, merge with one another. They kind of crash into each other at the entrance of, of the city. Now, the fact that there was a huge crowd uh, that constituted her, uh, the funeral procession for the son of this mother spoke about how, speaks about how uh, beloved she must have been in the city of, uh, of Nain. And then also, for all of the Jewish people, there would have been this uh, great compassion upon her because of the, the difficulty that the death of this son uh, introduced into, uh, into her life. And you think about the, the magnitude of this loss in terms of not only if we were to put ourselves in her shoes uh, today, but to put ourselves in her shoes uh, 2,000 uh, years ago. And uh, so uh, the, the magnitude of the loss is given to us very clearly in the passage, and there's always a great loss in the death of, of a family member, but he was more than just uh, a simply a dead man. We're told that he was somebody's son, uh, was a, 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 the son of this uh, mother. We're further told that she, he was the only 
only son of, of this mother. She has no other children. She has lost, uh, uh, that's a pain on top of pain. So this death has lost, left her now childless. We're told that he was a young man uh, later in verse 14 when Jesus says, young man, uh, arise. And, and always a tragedy. And the greater the tragedy that death is when a person is uh, uh, younger. And we also know that her loss was an immediate one and that he had died that very day she had suffered that loss. The Jews always buried, uh, even to this day, uh, bury on the same day of the death of a family member. And so this was an immediate loss. And we're told further that she was a widow, meaning that she had already experienced the pain of the death of her husband in the course of her life. She has no spouse now to help her carry uh, the grief of the loss of this son, no one to to hold her, no one to, uh, to weep with. And then beyond all of the pain, the emotional pain, uh, of, of this entire scene is uh, the, the, the dreadful forecast that all of this was uh, for her future in the light of her condition. To be husbandless and to be childless as she was now in that ancient world left her without anyone to care for her and to provide for her in her old age. There was no retirement programs. There were no social security programs. Um, and uh, all you had was your family uh, to take care of you, and she has lost her family uh, to take care of her in her, uh, in her old age. And so her past is a wreck, her present is, is heartbreaking, her future looks like it's going to be an absolute nightmare, and, uh, and that's the scope of the loss. And so in verse 13, uh, we're told that she was weeping, and when Jesus saw her, he had compassion uh, on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came and he touched the open coffin and uh, those who carried him, uh, the, the son, stood still. So he does two things Jesus does in response. The first thing that he does is he sees her. She wouldn't have been hard to spot because she would have been walking at the head of of the casket. They didn't really use caskets so much in those days as maybe a rug or cloth or something like that. But she would have been uh, easily recognized by her tears and the position that she was in in the procession. And Jesus' eye for all of this crowd that's around him, all of the popularity, everything going on, when he sees this kind of need, he, his attention goes completely uh, to her. And, uh, and then he, the first thing he did is he had compassion on her. His heart uh, broke related to her. And then he said to her, uh, do not weep. You know, it's one of the things about getting a little bit older and uh, you, you're around death more. And uh, something about a perspective that comes with being a little bit older. So now... Um, you know, I, kn- I know people that are my age or peers or whatever who are uh, dying or picking up terminal diseases or all kinds of, of, of different, uh, different things. And so you just start to live closer to death the older that you, you get in terms of uh, nothing like when you're 20 and it seems like somebody, if somebody died, it was like, wow, uh, every five years or something, depending on how big your group was. And, and, when, and when I hear, even as I heard this morning of a, a sister in the Lord who uh, went home to be with the Lord after a long fight with cancer, and your heart just breaks over the, the, the awful awful thing in the form of death that was introduced into human history uh, in that fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And you think about the repercussions of a single death. I mean, you see it right here in a village. It affects an entire, entire village and how far-reaching uh, death is. What an awful, awful enemy that death, uh, 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 death represents. 
And so he comes, he has compassion on her. Jesus, more than anyone in the whole world and or in all of human history, is aware of the fact that in that ancient Garden of Eden, God never intended that death would be a part of the human condition. So it broke his heart as he saw what it was that, that he was seeing. And then he went up to her and said, do not weep. Oh, okay. That's an interesting thing to say. You just put yourself right in that nanosecond right there. She's weeping, loss of a son. There he is in the casket or wrapped in the cloth, and he tells her not to weep. Well, if I did something like that, I'd probably get punched in the nose. But the reason that I mention it is that when Jesus gives this command, and we see it continually, when Jesus gives this command to not to weep, on the surface, it appears as if it would be the cruelest thing that he could ever say to this woman in this situation. And it would be if I had said it or anyone had said it other than Jesus. But when Jesus says something, even when his command appears cruel or it appears un, uh, uh, sympathetic or, or it appears simplistic, uh, when he makes that command, it is never that because he stands behind whatever he commands us to do. When he says, do this or don't do that, we can do this or don't do that in any given circumstance because of what he is now going to do in that circumstance that he alone can do. So he tells her, and again, how often we can take the greatness of our problems to the Scriptures and say, what does the Bible say that I need to do related to this sin in my life or this addiction in my life? And then the Bible comes back and says, be filled with the Holy Spirit and put off and put on. And it seems so simplistic and uh, with such a lack of understanding of the depth of the problem. No, the reason that it's powerful is because God says it. And so when we read God's Word and we look at it and it seems like that is, uh, that is insensitive, and, uh, this couldn't, uh, the God of the Bible can't really understand uh, the depth and, and the complexity of the problems of, of human life, giving commands like that, but He does. And the solution is simple because He offers the solution and He stands behind it. And so He said, uh, do not weep. And then he came and he touched the open coffin. He touched uh, the coffin there, which meant that he was bringing it to a stop. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, "Uh, young man, I say to you, uh, arise. And so he begins to speak to this young man. So we see this picture of the, the very best thing that man can do in the face of death. And what can we do? We can mourn for one another in our loss. Um, we can assist with taking care of the body. We can carry it out of the city, all the things that they're uh, doing. But man has, has no answer in and of himself related to death. And, and Jesus comes on the scene and, and uh, he comes and he speaks now to this dead man that's, that's laying there and calls on him uh, to uh, arise. And, uh, and it's fascinating when he uh, addresses this young man, uh, he addresses him personally. He gives him a command, again an impossible command, uh, to rise from the dead. And, and uh, he speaks to the young man as if he were speaking uh, to anyone else that was there on that scene. And so it, it, it tells us that this young man hadn't ceased to exist at the moment of his death. He hadn't ceased to maintain his own personal identity beyond this life and into eternity. He hadn't been reincarnated. He hadn't become a mere part of the energy force and absorbed by that in in the universe because none of those things happen when a person dies. We continue to live beyond the physical death. 
and we live on with our own individual personal identity. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. He wants that young man to come back, not a different young man. And he calls on him to arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak to clear evidences of resurrection. <laughs> to sit up in a moment and then to speak. Obviously, a miracle has taken place. And then he presented him to his mother. Oh, my, for a picture of that. And then the reaction of the entire crowd, fear came upon uh, 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 then fear came upon all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has uh, risen up among us and God has visited his people and this report about him went throughout Judea and all the surrounding uh, area and so that news went and spread uh, like wildfire and so, uh, this beautiful, beautiful resurrection from the dead. Now, one of the things that, before I became a Christian, some of you know my story a little bit on, on this, is I was acutely aware of death. I don't know why there was that, that consciousness of the fact. Um, I was acutely aware of a lot of things that, um, uh, I was a bit of an old man. Uh, even as a kid, and and, and so um, just aware, even in my uh, teens or in my early twenties, when you're at your prime, uh, the recognition that death is coming and that you ought to do something to hedge against it. And so I was taking all kinds of vitamins and I was taking uh, all kinds of things for, um, the, the, to help your body and I was running like a maniac, all of which I enjoyed. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But it's wrong to do those things and think I'm, uh, this is somehow uh, going to ultimately serve me when I, one day that I face, uh, face death. But there's that recognition, and it's what the book of Hebrews talks about, um, the, the bondage to the fear of death. If a person who is not a Christian does not fear death, they're not a thinking person. Uh, as the old joke goes, we don't laugh at it anymore, but it's the truth, uh, death is batting a thousand in, in uh, human history, except where Jesus interjected himself. Everybody is going to die uh, short of of uh, the rapture uh, of the church. And it's something that needs to be prepared for. And it can never be prepared for by eating bran or by taking vitamins or eating, only eating organic vegetables or exercising uh, five out of the seven days uh, a week. The only way that a person can gain a victory over death is through our faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus uh, warns, uh, warned the world uh, uh, concerning uh, death and the, <clears throat> the fact of death and, and essentially has told the entire world, <clears throat> excuse me, don't trust in any kind of guru or teacher or philosophy who has not, number one, addressed the reality of death and then number two, provided a victory over death. And only Jesus provides that. Only he provides that. And somebody might say, well, you know, uh, a lot of Christians die. So what's the deal about that? When, when Jesus, uh, uh, when death occurs to a Christian today, and, and so often we can look and say, um, God, would you just raise him back from the dead? Would you just raise her back from the dead? And sometimes we can be convinced that that is the single greatest thing that God can do in the face of death related to our loved ones. Well, that was the greatest thing that Jesus could do in this scene. But following his death, burial, and resurrection, providing salvation to man, uh, mankind, access to the kingdom uh, of, of God, the, the highest means of addressing death is that when a Christian dies, is to not bring us back from the dead, but to further clothe us with our body, an eternal body as the Bible speaks about, 
that is created for the eternal realm. And that's the higher thing that he does. And as much as we may want somebody to be brought back, he has already done the far greater thing by giving them this new body. Now they are in eternity. Now they are enjoying the glory of eternity. And they have experienced the highest. And to bring them back would be to bring them uh, down from an unbelievable high, an unbelievable new reality. And so I don't marvel that he doesn't uh, raise many from the dead, though um, he's free to do that. I have put my prayer request in. Please do not bring me back from the dead. You know, you put those little red things up, do not resuscitate things, <laughs> or whatever it might be. Please. When I'm go- I don't want to die twice. Uh, one will be enough if, if, uh, if I go before the rapture. And uh, wouldn't want to come back except in his will, of course, in, uh, in, uh, from, uh, from the dead, back into all of this mess uh, before the election or after the election or whatever will, election will be happening a year from now or five years from now or 20 years uh, from now or whatever God uh, has uh, in mind. And so Jesus' victory over death. And I don't know what it means to you. You may look and say, I think, I think my pastor's crazy talking about death this way. I never give it a single thought. Well, I'm really glad for you. And if you're a Christian, you don't really need uh, to do that. But if I did not know the Lord and I did not possess His victory over death and the confidence, the absolute confidence of knowing that when this life is over, I enter into a new life, an eternal life based upon Jesus' victory, not here at this scene with a widow of Nain, but based upon His death, burial, and resurrection at Calvary and at that empty tomb, I'll tell you, I'd be haunted by uh, the approach of death. Why does it exist? What happens when I die? How am I going to die? What's going to, uh, what will come again after on all of it? And now, uh, 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 me with many other people, he's taken it off the table as something to uh, consider, even as we've sung today about his great victory over death. And it is a great victory and a great cause for peace. Well, let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer and ask the worship team to then close us in a worship song.